I would like to uh, read a verse. It's actually in your sermon notes from the Gospel of Mark. This is in chapter 9 for our message. I read this a couple weeks ago as part of a Sunday school lesson, and it leaped off the page at me. For some reason, I hadn't thought about this angle of things before. There was a guy who brought his son to the disciples of Jesus Christ. His son had bad problems. He had issues. His son had, was troubled by a demon. And he described in this story and in his conversation with Jesus, he actually described the effect of that demon on his son. Basically, the demon often tried to kill his son or cause his son to commit suicide. It's a terrible situation as a parent to uh, watch your child deal with something that's very harmful, that's very hurtful. We, you know, as parents, we, we never, we would rather take it ourselves and have our child deal with it. But... This boy had these issues. And so uh, this man had known of Jesus, had heard of Jesus, and he brought this child. Jesus wasn't there, but he brought his, this child to Jesus' disciples. And he said to them, I brought my son to you so that you can cast a demon out of my son. Now, that happened while Jesus and a couple of his inner circle were up on the mountain and were told that they had this marvelous moment of praise and worship up there. And Jesus even gave them a glimpse of a glorified body where he didn't even look like the human figure. He looked, it says, whiter than, the, the, he was just surrounded by light and, and in, he was inundated by light and he was glorified in their presence. And the Lord spoke to him and said, I'm just confirming things. This is my son. Listen to everything he tells you. So they came back down the mountain. And it says that when Jesus and, and the, these couple guys came to the larger group of disciples, there was an argument going on. There was something had happened that was, was very controversial. And Jesus came and he said, what are you people arguing about? And that's when the man said to him, Well, I'm a little upset, Jesus. My son has this demon. I brought him to your disciples. I expected them, and I put that word in there. It's not in the text in the English translation. But it's the gist of it. It's the meaning of it. So I just put it in there because that's the angle that I want to talk about. I expected they would help him, and they didn't help him. And I'm not too happy. I mean, isn't this the healing gang? Isn't this, aren't you the, the Christians? Isn't that what Christians do? You pray for folks, and they get healed. And I brought my son here, and they prayed, or whatever they did. And this man was very upset. It's, it doesn't tell us anything about him. It just calls him a man in the crowd. So that could be anybody, and that could be anybody from our world who's not part of the Christian community or part of the church family. It could be anybody. It could be a neighbor. It could be a co-worker. It could be 
um, someone that um, that you just simply know from your your uh, your neighborhood, somebody you run into at the hardware store. We don't know what his name was. We don't know if he was a Jew or a Gentile. We don't know if he was an atheist or an agnostic or what he might have been. We don't know any details about this man. But he's a symbol to us of people outside of the church, the world out there, who just show up at times and say, oh, you can help me because you are a Christian, and I know that Christians are connected to God. At least they say they're connected to God. They have some kind of a, of a relationship, a fellowship, a connection with God. I hear you talk about that all the time. I need a little demonstration. I need some help. And that's what this man had done. He brought his son, and he, and, he, and he needed some help. He said, please drive this demon out. And they couldn't do it. And so he was, uh, he was disgusted. He was distraught. And his, his actions, uh, his expectations led to some kind of an argument. What were they arguing about? I don't know. I think of so many questions when I read that. Um, were they arguing about the proper way to exorcise a demon? I don't know. Um, were they arguing about why what they had tried wasn't working? I don't know. Maybe they were arguing with him saying, what right do you have to come in here on us and expect us to do you a favor? You're not part of us. You're not part of our group. Or you're not even a fellow believer. So what, what right do you have to expect us to do something to help you? I don't know. Maybe that's what they were arguing about. It doesn't say. It just says they were arguing. That does happen. It does happen a lot that folks who seemingly do not share our faith still have an expectation upon us who profess the faith that it's real for us. And at times in their life, they want to tap into it or they, they look for help from it. It's just some of the questions that this issue raise, raises. And so I want to talk about this a moment, this the fact that we who are believers in God are expected to be connected. We profess that we are connected. And once in a while, somebody kind of rocks us back in our heels by saying, well, why, why, won't, why are you uh, hesitant about this? Isn't this what you say you believe? Isn't this what you say you do? This man said, I asked them to help me. That means I came with the expectation that they would or they could, but it didn't work out. It's not working out. So these questions come to our, our mind. Do unbelievers have the right to come to us who are believers and ask us to pray for them or to help them out or to intervene, or to somehow to, to care uh, about them or for them. Some people would say, well, they don't believe themselves. What, by what possible right would they project their lack of belief over on me and think I should help them? And it's a legitimate question, I think, to ask. Do unbelievers have the right to expect certain standards of behavior or morals from Christians? This is an issue all the time. We see where someone is condemned or vilified or fired for some more immoral behavior by people who, who 
do not exercise any, any higher moral behavior themselves. Or who do not even profess to believe in morals. And yet, because someone does, that profession of theirs is held like an expectation over their heads. And so, people who do not even try to maintain a certain moral standard will often expect it of someone else who says they believe in that, and that's what they practice. This, in, in my way of thinking, is sort of the bottom line of, quest, of, of the questioning or of, the, of this story. Do unbelievers have the right to expect believers to do things that they don't do themselves? Do they have a right to hold us to a standard that they don't live up to themselves? Maybe this is part of what they were arguing about. I don't know. But I say to myself when I read this, well, if the Father thought these disciples as followers of Jesus had such great power, um, if he thought that casting out a demon was such an easy thing for someone as a believer, why wasn't he a believer himself? Why didn't he cast it out himself if it's, if it's such a simple thing? If, if he thought that the followers of Jesus had a special power, why hadn't he joined the band of disciples and become a, a follower of Jesus himself? But it doesn't seem like that's what the case was. So just a couple of thoughts about this. It seems as if that in the flow of our lives, the world hears our rhetoric they're not here with us on Sunday morning. They don't hear maybe the praise songs we sing or uh, the creeds that we read. But they know, they hear somehow or other. They get the message and they hear the rhetoric that we believe in God. We have faith. Through God, all things are, through faith, all things are possible. That God is a God of healing, a God of love, a God of power, and that that he lives within us. They hear us say these wonderful, wonderful things. And therefore, they expect us to be able to back up our claim. And I think that's what was going on with these disciples. This man came and he said, no, I, I'm not a... Perhaps he wasn't a believer in Jesus. Maybe he just had heard that wonderful things could happen, that Jesus had some kind of powers and, and he just came. Maybe he was... Uh, seeking him, and, and we don't know what the level of his faith was. But um, what we do know is that from the claim that Jesus made or these disciples made that connected them to Jesus, this man then had a certain expectation upon them. And this is often the expectation of the world upon the, the believers, the church. Is it right? Or is it not right that they can have such an expectation? I think probably we argue about it at times. Um, it seems so bizarre. You know, folks come here at the stop at the church at times asking for help financially. This happens a lot. And, uh, you know, people come in here who I know curse the name of God. I hear them. But then they want someone who is a believer or who is reverent or who has a, an acknowledgement and a relationship with God to help them. On the one hand, out of one side of their mouth, they're damning God. 
On the other hand, they're coming to people who love God and say, hey, hey, brother, I need your help in whatever way. Is that inconsistent? Is that uh, bizarre? Yes. Sometimes I remind people when they get a bit huffy uh, that if everybody was like them, there wouldn't be a church to come and ask for help because they don't attend church. They don't participate. They don't give anything to help anybody else. But from those who do, they expect help because they have heard that people who follow Christ have compassion. They've heard that they are givers, that they are lovers, that they are helpers. And so from that reputation, from that, uh, from that message comes to them the expectation that we are connected with God and that we would help them even when they themselves do not embrace the faith or the reality that we face. So if it's right or wrong that they would have these expectations upon us, I mean, logically, it's not, it's wrong. Why would I expect someone to do something for me that I wouldn't do for them? Logically, that doesn't make sense, but I'm simply saying it's really quite irrelevant whether it's right or wrong, whether this guy had, his, had the right to bring his demonized boy or whether he didn't. It's kind of irrelevant. He came, and they come. And we are expected to be connected, whether we think it's uh, fair or not. And so our response to this is, number one, we can reject it when folks seek our help or seek our prayer or seek our knowledge or wisdom when folks come to us with questions or situations or circumstances. We can say, well, you know, that person's just laying this on me because they know that I'm a Christian and I think it's unfair and I reject the, uh, the idea that I need to help them or that I'm required to help them just because I'm a Christian. They're kind of taking advantage of me, or they're trying to, and I'm not going to let them do that. That's one option. The other option is that you can say, as Jesus certainly did on that day, I'm not going to worry about whether it's fair or not, or whether it's right or not, whether it's logical or not. This is an opportunity for me to demonstrate what I believe, to demonstrate what I say. To demonstrate the reality of the conviction and the relationship that is within me with a holy God. The connection that I have is going to show because this is an opportunity for me. And maybe this is accountability for me. Perhaps my relationship with God or my connection with God has become a bunch of fluff. And I've just allowed it to slide off into a, a, a sort of a habit or a ritual. And now here's somebody, here comes somebody saying, hey, I got, a, I got a sick person here. Would you come and pray for him? Or I, I, I need you to behave in a certain way or to help out in a certain way because I need your help. And it can provide accountability for me. It can be for me a moment where I wake up and say, well, hold on, David. What, what are you? Are you a Christian? If you are, this is a time to, to show up. If this is what you believe, here's a chance to put it into practice. And maybe that does more for my accountability than anything else has done for quite a while. And so uh, that's the other option. Um, to reject it is, is not cool. 
it is not uh, Christ, the way of Christ, to accept it and not worry about whether it's logical or fair or right is the greatest way to live. Uh, I want to mention three scriptures, and these three all use some kind of a re- have some kind of a reference to dealing with outsiders, dealing with those who are not fellow believers. And yet there's a there's a relationship or there's an opportunity or there's an expectation. This one is in Colossians four. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. And that's what this was for Jesus and his disciples. And I I am not faulting the disciples. I don't know if I could have cast a demon out of that boy that day. Jesus later said to them, well, you know, some of them are more difficult than others. Because they came to him and said, why couldn't we do it? We tried. So they weren't uh, uh, trying just to escape this expectation that was upon them. And Jesus said, well, sometimes, you know, there's prayer and fasting that's needed in certain circumstances. And, and so this, this was an opportunity that they saw. And it says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. Grace, that means restraint. Grace means that I don't tell somebody off just because I think they're trying to take advantage of me. I, I, I do things in the strength that only God can give me to do. So that you know how to answer everyone. So two things that I'll mention in connection with that. It mentions my behavior. Let, um, I forgot how it went. The way you act. That's behavior. And, and so as I have opportunity to interact with those who may have an expectation upon me because of my Christian faith. Paul says, let your behavior be without, uh, without criticism. Let it be above reproach. I think that, um, that one of the ways that I can do that, one of the safeguards to help me to be on my best behavior is to realize that whenever I spend time with unbelievers, or whenever I'm in a conversation or have an opportunity with unbelievers, that I realize that they do have an expectation upon me. And that this is an opportunity for me to show them the reality of my connection with God. Whether I think it's fair or not, whether I think they're they're doing it for nefarious purposes or whether they are sincere is irrelevant. It is still an opportunity for me. And then he also mentions conversation. Let your conversation be filled with grace. Let it be seasoned with salt. That's just an illustration of a way of saying let it be let it let your conversation um, back to them reflect grace and patience. So, in other words, when the when the dude came up to the disciples and he said, "Hey, I brought my son here. He's this kid is in terrible shape. I want you to help him." Having a conversation filled with grace would not be to respond by saying, "Well, that's ridiculous. What makes you think I will help your son?" What makes you think I would pray for him? Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not how we would respond. Even if we did think it was ridiculous, we wouldn't tell them that. We wouldn't say it in that way. But we would say instead, well, maybe it is ridiculous. But God can help and and God can reveal his power in the most ridiculous situation. They need me to pray for them. I will pray for them. 
And I will pray sincerely for them. I don't care what their motive is. Maybe God will save them in spite of their motive. Maybe they're here trying to make fun of me or make me look ridiculous. I'm not, I'm not really concerned about that. God can turn anything into a situation of his blessing and where he gets a hold of somebody's life. So towards outsiders in both our conversation and in our behavior, Paul says, uh, they have a, let your connection with God rise to the surface and be sincere with that in your response to those who don't share your faith. Because maybe they secretly dream and hope that your faith, your faith is real, that there is reality there. But they're just not convinced or they're not showing you that. Here's a second uh, scripture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, so that your daily life will win the respect of outsiders. So if they come with an expectation... He's saying respond in a way that they leave with respect, even if they're kind of bringing it to you as a, as a way of making fun of you or a way of confronting you. It's all right. When they leave, if you, if you really let your connection with God be, tr- be real, they'll leave with respect. Whether they agree with you or not, whether they become believers or not, they'll leave with respect. So, this is the goal that he has. Two thoughts here. The quiet life. This does not mean do not talk. This is not talking about a a quiet person who is just uh, personality-wise, they're not very outgoing. It's not dealing with that at all. It's it's talking about um, being a a person, as he says, minding your own business. You're not not out here uh, being a person who is raising controversy, raising, raising Cain all the time. You're not, you're not being a person who is always seeking to stir up some kind of a, of a confrontation, especially not with the people who are coming to you with their expectation, saying, can you help me? Would you, would you show me some interest or some care? Would you, would you pray for me? Can I borrow some money? Can I have some money? I, I need help. Um, it could be easy that, we, it could be that we could take advantage of that or we could abuse that need in that moment. And Paul says, no, that's not the response. Towards outsiders, live a quiet life. Live a life that is self-dependent, a life that takes care of itself, a life that leans upon the Lord at the same time, is not trying to take advantage of somebody else. And then he says, uh, back up here one time. I think I went forward. Let me back up. He says, um, your daily life, so that your daily life will win the respect of outsiders. You see that word daily? That makes me think of this. Besides being quiet, we have to live lives that are open enough, not so quiet that nobody knows about us. Now, I know we all have different personalities, and some of us are very outgoing, and some of us are just very um, quiet by nature, and we're, we're kind of bashful, and we certainly you know, don't go and talk to strangers easily and all that. 
But how is anybody going to know about your daily life if you're withdrawn? There are folks and there are groups of folks whose goal is to be withdrawn from the outside world, to be separated from the outside world. Well, how then are they going to have any respect for your daily life if they don't even know what your daily life is? So in the quietness of our confident, faith-filled lives, we still have to mingle with people and be part of uh, our family, our work, our world in enough of a way that they actually can see our daily lives, that they can actually, um, that they can actually, we can win their respect. If I'm, if I'm so withdrawn that nobody knows anything about me, then I'm not going to have any respect uh, for them. They're, they're not going to have any expectations upon me because they don't know anything about me. They don't trust me because they don't know me. Here's the third verse, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 12. Speaking of himself in regards to the outsiders, the world, meaning the, the world of the, of outside the church, the non-Christian world, Paul says, I've conducted myself with holiness and sincerity that are from God. I've not done this according to worldly smarts, but according to God's grace. I have been overly patient. I have been overly kind. I have been overly helpful and loving. I have shown God's kind of life carefully in all holiness and sincerity in regards to those who might come knocking on my door or might have wild or crazy uh, different um, expectations of me. Holiness means that it's motivated by God's nature and committed to God's values. It's not trying to be uh, a popular. I'm not, the, the disciples, to go back to the story, were not to uh, agree to cast out the demon just so they get their name in the papers. Or so that the guy would, uh, you know, would come to their businesses or would, would, um, they would have advantage out of it. No, it was simply that this is who they were. This was God's nature being worked out through them. And secondly, when he says it's that he has lived his life before the world in sincerity, what that means is that he's going to be the same person. He's make every attempt to be the same person, whether he's with the world or whether he's without, just by himself, whether he's in public or whether he's in private. That he's the same person. He's going to be the same person. If you're sincere, it means you are without hypocrisy. You, I mean, you might be mistaken. You might be ignorant. But at least you, you believe and are acting out what you believe. That's the idea of what it means to be sincere. So Paul says, this is what any outsider has the right to expect. The connection of God, the, my connection with God, gives me gives me life, and they have the right to expect that that connection would show up, not just Sunday morning when I'm at church. They have the right to expect that it would show up some other time as well. So let me just close by saying this. Expectations are sometimes unfair, and they're often hypocritical on the part of those who bring them. I grant that. I've, I've seen that many, many times, and we all know that's true. But even though they may be hypocritical, even though they may, be, they may come with their expectations for less than stellar reasons, those are still opportunities to demonstrate our connection with God. And so 
I think the balance that I want to close with is, is to say this. Um, you don't have to have the attitude that says, okay, you play your flute, I got to jump. I know you have this expectation upon me, and therefore I, I, I am at your will. I'm at your whim. It's not about entertaining anybody. So when the, man, when the man came with his son and said, please pray for my son, it, it wasn't to entertain him that the disciples needed to jump. I just want to make that clear, understand, understood. God doesn't expect us to be a source of entertainment for those who might want to play the music and watch us dance. It's not, it's, it's not for that purpose. On the other hand, when their expectation becomes for me a challenge, an opportunity that I can witness to them, that I can prove this connection is real and this power is real, then I need to take it seriously. And, um, and that's what you know, that's what uh, happened with these disciples. Think about, think about this one quick story. In the Old Testament, Daniel was a very sincere believer. And he prayed. It says every time, every day, three times a day, he'd go and pray. So there was a great connection to God. And he had some neighbors and some business. He had some people who were envious of him. And they said, uh, we can use that against him. We can get him in trouble with that. So they go to the king and they say, king, pass a law against praying. King says, okay. They knew that Daniel's connection, they expected that he was so connected that it wouldn't change. And they, of course, were right. King passed the law. Daniel continued to pray. So they came back to the king, and they say, King, just like we expected, Daniel's really sincere. And this prayer of his that he does, um, it's, it, he, it comes from the bottom of his heart. No law's going to change it. But unfortunately, you did pass the law. And so you got to now put him in the den of lions. And the king said, oh, no, I love Daniel. I don't want to put him in it. You have to. And so the king came and got Daniel and took him to the mouth of the lion's den. And he said this before he put him in jail, before he put him in the in lion's den. Daniel, I expect, I've expected that you're connected. I, I expected that you're connected. I, I expect that your connection is sincere and it's real and I hope with all my heart, he's holding his fingers like it, I hope that what you believe in is actually true because I don't want to see you die. You're a cool cat. You're, you're a great guy. I'm hoping that what you say you have is actually true and real. And so you have here, my point is this, you have these two different people, the king and uh, the enemies, 
And they both expecting that Daniel is connected to God, but they have different motives. They have different reasons why they come to him with the same kind of expectation. We don't have any control over the reasons why, but the world expects us to to have a connection with God because we say we do. And they're going to come at times and say, out of that expectation, um, out of that, I have this expectation. Please help me. And it's a great opportunity for us when that happens to witness and to prove this power of God that is real within us. Heavenly Father, um, this course that we close with is simply a prayer. And we want to pray that prayer as we close today to ask you to win someone, to cast a demon out somewhere through us. That some, some, sometime even this week, when somebody comes and says, hey, I, gotta, I, I need some help, that we would know that they're coming to us because we're connected, and therefore they have an expectation of that, and that this is a, a tremendous opportunity for us to bring you into their life and to see this demon cast out and to see their life changed. Help us, we pray, as we do that, even as we pray this through this song. Can we stand, please, together just to sing this one simple prayer? It's just like two or three lines. Maybe you could just play it for us, Lita. This is a prayer. Lord, lay some soul upon my heart. And love that soul through me. And may I bravely do my part to win that soul for thee. Lord, we come to you who alone can save us, can present us faultless in your presence in exceeding glory. Unto you be honor and glory in the church, in the world, and in our lives, today and always. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming today. Hope that you have a wonderful day.